0: So, we are currently in a teaching series that we've entitled, This is the Way, in which we're following Jesus through the book of Luke. And today, we're going to be in the first half of Luke 8. But first, I want a couple of personal notes that are going on uh, in our church. Um, Of course, my heart's moved with our sudden loss of Wilma Eubank. Oh, she's a treasure. She has been a church treasure here since I've been here. And uh, we are going to miss her. So, uh, just especially those of you who are close with her, I know I'm, I'm joining you in your grief there. Had a great celebration yesterday of Ty's life, and I just, I didn't get to know Ty, and so I felt cheated after hearing everything about him. So, Charlotte, we're with you in that as well. Um, so, some of you remember uh, when Jakin had his sudden rude interruption on our life by, you know, Losing his heartbeat and his breath and all of that—that happened. I was in Houston, and what I was doing in Houston was emptying out my dad's house. He's had to move to a living uh, assisted living situation, and so I'm going through his house. Anyway, this last week I started looking at my calendar, going, "Dude, if I wait till after Easter, I'm moving into a couple of graduations of Jake and my oldest son, and moving my son to his new residence after he graduates college. I I, just—it was getting tight, so." I called an audible, and I'm leaving this week to go and hopefully finish that job. So next week, you have the honor and privilege of my brother who's rescuing me so I can do this. Dimitri is going to be preaching for us again. You got to hear him in his couple of classes, and you've heard him preach here. And he graciously accepted. He said, Luke's one of my favorite books anyway, you know, one of my favorite gospels. So. So I won't be here next week because this week I'm going down and hopefully gonna finish that job and I covet your prayers for that because y'all, many of you have been through this, going through the house. It's not just a cleanup job. It's a sentimental, emotional kind of exploration of your past, you know? And so that's cool too. So dad, I'm coming. I'm coming back. See you this week. Um, another personal thing that we have going is Dole Quarter. Some of you know this. He, he has had some back issues for a long time now and has done... Everything there is to do in the process of trying to address it short of surgery, but it 's now gotten to the point where that 's his next option and so he is having that surgery tomorrow right down in Dallas, so he is going to be recovering for weeks here for a while, so we will be missing him in this spot here and dole we 're praying for you you 're special to us, we care about this and um and uh, I just want to, I just covet your prayers on his behalf as he does that tomorrow. We're just praying for complete and total healing for him uh, through this surgery. And we're grateful to God for the medical prowess that we have. But he joins a long list of folks that are ailing in some ways or grieving in some ways. So let me just pause and just say a prayer uh, for him and, and for just our church family on, on behalf of those things father we we are so grateful for your loving care for us, and this life, as we do run this race we we hit hurdles and we trip and fall, and things happen, and uh, some of our own doing because of our own mistakes or sinfulness, and then some just because of the nature of this world it 's not heaven it's it 's short of that. We pray that you bring your kingdom here in ever-increasing measure. And I pray specifically for our brother Doyle uh, as he uh, has this surgery tomorrow. And I pray your just total healing and restoration of his ability to move and, and be without pain as he does so through this, God. Just we trust you with that and ask and just appeal to you that you protect the longevity of his ministry by giving him health, God. So many of us benefit from that. So we pray on behalf of, of all of that, God, uh, in the name of Jesus. Now pray for just all of us as we engage in the normal goings-on of life. There are, we all have those things. And I can't name all hundred, the hundreds or thousands of them that are in this room, but you know them all personally and intimately. So we thank you for your fatherhood. And so God, um, we know also that all of your love for us is out of the overflow of your love for your son and so we now continue our journey with him we know you're so pleased with us just putting our eyes and our minds on jesus and we do pray god that you continue to author and perfect our faith as we engage this world and we represent you in the world thank you for Jesus' life thank you for his teachings today that we'll be looking at in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Chapter 8. We're only doing half of this chapter. Uh, Demetria will finish up the second half of chapter 8 and start into chapter 9 next week. And then Easter will finish chapter 9. Of course, we will not be in the resurrection just yet, but it just so happens, as God would have it, that chapter 9 has a pretty big crescendo in the story the way Luke tells it, and it connects us to all the work of Christ. So invite your friends. They, they would, I know there are people that need a place to go this Easter. So starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Interesting follower of Jesus there. Susanna and many others. These women... We're helping to support them out of their own means. So after a whole chapter in Capernaum, which I've told you is the new base of operations for Jesus, his kind of adopted hometown as he begins uh, doing this ministry, we have here a brief description of how Jesus is going about his ministry. So three things I notice in this little interlude. First, he was definitely in spread-the-word mode, right? I mean, he could have. He could have many times just hunkered down right there in Capernaum or any town he wanted to and planted a church and just done that. But that wasn't what he was doing. He it literally says he went to the villages and towns proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He's in spread the word mode. Okay? Then second thing we need to see here is he prioritizing he's prioritizing the 12. So you remember he made a big deal a couple chapters ago of appointing these 12 and since then Luke wants us to read this in terms of the training and equipping that those 12 are doing in preparation for when Jesus hands off the ministry to them and the Holy Spirit comes down to them in a special way and enables them to continue the work so that they can do that. So he made a big deal with that by saying they were with him. That's how he made the disciples, by the way. That's how he made disciples, by having them with him. He did it through relationships, through rubbing off. I've heard a, a, one of these Greek words means that rubbing off the skin. Like it's just being close and it's, it's a contagiousness that that's how he makes disciples by having them with him. But then he includes two of these three verses do this. He then includes women and it probably doesn't jump off the page to you like it should and like it would have in the first century. He includes women in his ministry in a new, unconventional mostly unaccepted and therefore provocative way. Luke is really highlighting this, and it's not the first time he's done this. Again, you and I probably don't notice it, but the first century reader, that would have jumped off the page in Luke's writing. And the first century observer, that would have been noticeable as this little band of disciples is walking around from town to town with Jesus. It's not just men. It's a mixed group, gender-wise. That would be a one-off. There was only one rabbi doing that, in the world, and it was Jesus. Only Jesus, and Luke took note of it here. So we can't minimize or ignore this. Luke, in particular, has made a point in the Gospels. I've already sort of pointed it out to you, but if you look back, Luke elevates women's role in the ministry of Jesus, including them very intentionally for an intentional effect, as he writes. You see it throughout. Whenever he mentions, so far, whenever he mentions a man or a group of men, he quickly attaches a woman or a group of women to it. That would have been so noticeable for them. You saw it right at the beginning in the first story, Zechariah and Elizabeth. The second story is Mary and Joseph. As a matter of fact, Joseph gets a lesser role in Luke's narrative than he does in Matthew and in the other Gospels. It's, It's about Mary. He's highlighting this. Then when Jesus is taken to the temple, remember that Simeon was there, that priestly man was there, but it quickly adds Anna was also there, this prophetess. And then uh, just a few weeks ago in chapter three, there was the miracle to Naaman, the Syrian on his behalf, but then it attached to the widow of Zarephath. It attached that, not leaving the women out as the target audience of Jesus. Then last week we talked about the centurion Right, and then quickly the widow of Nain right there and elevating at the end he elevates the righteousness of a sinful woman over the religious man Simon I mean all through this if you have ears to hear hear and eyes to see you see what Luke's doing now Jesus does it in his ministry so it's not like Luke is contriving this and the other gospels you'd see the unusual use of women but Luke seems to note those details because women were marginalized, and Jesus was about the marginalized, and Luke is the only Gentile author, and Gentiles were marginalized, so of course it's him that noticed more than the normal churchgoer that Jesus is about the marginalized, and that includes women. And so we need to notice this, and he makes a point to say who they are. He names them, tells them a little bit of history on a couple of them. And then it says that they were supporting him out of their own means. Now, why is that notable? Because people smarter than me that I study all this about tell me that that's normal for disciples to support their rabbis out of their own means. So it would have been assumed that those fishermen and that tax collector and those those men that are following Jesus are supporting him out of their own means. He didn't need to mention that it was notable that these women were doing the same thing the men were doing. These women were operating with this rabbi in a way that is identical to what these men were doing. That's why he notes that. They were supporting them out of their own means. And he also, there's embedded in there that they are not fully and totally defined by the men in their lives. Right? I mean, one of them's married to this high official in Herod, and yet she has her own means. You know? And so... This would have been notable. That, that, that That's what needs to stand out to you is what stood out to them. The casual observer of Jesus' ministry as they watched this band of brothers and sisters going by. That would have been new. Okay, continuing on. Verse four. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. I'm gonna read it again to you. A farmer went out to sow his seed As he was scattering the seed, some fell among the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on the rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, "'He who has ears, let him hear.'" His disciples asked him what this parable meant, and he said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed, it's the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, but then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stand for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, life's riches, and life's pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hears the word, Retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So, this is a great teaching. Again, there's so much here, but as we're going through this in the 10,000 foot view, I've got to decide how much to unpack of all these things in each chapter. So, this is a great teaching for me to explain to you and introduce to you a way of applying scripture i was taught this years and years ago and you'd already know how to read scripture hopefully if you've been here if you haven't been here you don't know this but you know if if you've been here for a long time we've talked a lot about we read scripture through the lenses of love story and wisdom in order to extract from scripture what the holy spirit wrote that scripture for all right? But now I'm talking about not just reading it, but applying. When I get to a section of text and I want to apply it to me, we need to ask, how does it apply to me? And so you can write this down. This is worthwhile. How do you apply scripture? Look at it through the personal, the ministerial, and the theological lens. Okay, Through the personal ministry and theological lens. In other words, what does this teach me personally about me? What does this tell me about me? What do I need to be reflecting on? What do I need to be transforming into? How do I need to apply this in my personal life? And then secondly, what does this teach me about how, how I go on ministering to the world? right? What does this teach me about how I engage the world as an ambassador of Christ, which I know I'm supposed to be? How do I share this good news that I am taking in personally and learning from and appreciating? How do I get that to others, in my family or outside my family? And then last, theologically, that just means, what does this teach me? What does this passage teach me about God, about maybe some false narratives I have about God and replacing them with true things about God? Well, because who we see god as affects everything we do personally and what we do in ministry so just walking through it though, through those lens it, this is a great one because the personal one we it's easy to ask what kind of soil am i right that's the personal question what kind of soil am i have you ever done that disk survey d e d i s c can spell I need to slow down Chill out. Can't spell disc. So whenever you take that, you naturally know, okay, I'm supposed to evaluate myself, my personality, based on these four categories. Jesus gives us these four categories. So which one am I? Am I the one represented by the hard path, which is basically just a closed mind? Right? There's lots of reasons for people, and there's tons of us that have moments like this, and there's tons of people that just have this, that have a closed mind. There can be various reasons for it, but basically it's, I'm just uninterested. I'm uninterested in the kingdom. I'm uninterested in the word of God, Jesus, the gospel, kingdom things. So it just doesn't penetrate at all. Doesn't matter if I am before this most incredible life-saving, life-giving news that will ever be presented before me. If I'm close to it, it has No effect. And Satan is giving credit here for those along the hard path as having a great success by just taking that pearl of great price, of great value, just taking it away. Is that me? Am I just uninterested? Okay. I need to reflect on that personally. How about the rocky ground. It's, it's better probably described shallow ground because when it's rocky, it's not like good soil with rocks in it. Back then, it would have been a thin layer of soil that's spread out over a big, you know, shale or something underneath the ground. So when the word goes down into it, it might sprout because it's got a little bit, there's no room to get roots, so it can't get moisture. And so this is those, he says, with no commitment and therefore no capacity to, to, to allow it to take root in their lives so they have very shallow excitement and once the world presents something that tests that once we come across something that tests our resolve it just it just we fall away we fall he, they use that word it, it, they fall away is that me is that me i've got a very shallow commitment to the gospel Because I have a very shallow root. And then the thorny ground. This is just the age old. Probably all of us have struggled with this because of the spirit of the age we're in. This is, we're too busy. We're too busy to focus on the gospel and the most important thing. With what? He outlines them. Life's worries. Any of you have any of those? Life's worries can choke it. Life's riches. Any of us ever focused on that? Life's pleasures. Anyone ever pursuing those things? Just mindlessly going with what feels good? what seems to make sense to you and in your flesh yep those things can come in and because of our commitment to those things even if we have a commitment to that gospel it they grow together and these worldly things win choke the fruitfulness of the kingdom because the throne in heaven is not a pew it's one person supposed to sit there and that's jesus so is that me Am I still at the same? Every year, can you look back and say, where have I grown in Christ? If you can't answer that, then you're not maturing. You might be being choked. That's what it says. Is that me? Or am I the good soil? I want to because I love what he says. If we're good soil, it means we have a noble and good heart. That's what good soil is, just a noble and good heart. And he defines it. He defines it as someone who doesn't just hear it. They do hear it. But then he says, then intentionally dwells on it meaning retain it. They retain it. And then with perseverance, they act on it. That's what the noble and good heart is in my good soil. So that's the personal lens. So the ministry lens, we look at how the word, right? If we're going, how do I go about sharing this with others? Okay. Well, that's the sower's job in this story. You know what he is? He's a seed chunker. Reg Cox gave me that Back at Kadesh at ACU a long time ago, he gave me that, I've kept it ever since. We're seed chunkers. That's our job. We just liberally chunk the seeds out there. That's how we go about ministry, by living like Christ, by sharing about Christ, by sharing about, honestly, with a mask off, about our struggles and how Christ comes into our lives. There's just all kinds of ways, but we're seed chunkers, just living our life dedicated with a pure, noble heart. Right for Christ, and that chunk seeds. And so there's a couple of things we learn from this parable. At least I do when I think of my ministry, my working with other people, and wanting them to receive Christ. We're not surprised or discouraged when it doesn't land and produce fruit. We're not we're not discouraged by that. I mean, three out of the four soils, okay, are it's not going to produce fruit. That that's not our business, really. We're seed chunkers. The sower's a seed chunker, and. He's not too concerned in this parable about the soil. Okay? And so we're not surprised. We're not discouraged. So we just keep on. We're faithful to being like Christ and sharing about Christ and telling the good news and the gospel and the word. And we let the word of God do its thing. And so that's one thing. We're not discouraged or surprised. But we also, on the other hand, it also, I see in this, the instruction of we don't force growth. We don't force growth. We don't chug seeds into someone we really, really care about and then pour, douse it with water and pour it with fertilizer. And we probably are supposed to fertilize and water, but we don't pour it on. And then here's the crime. Reach down in the soil to pull the vine out. We got to have it because life and death is in the balance. We don't do that. We're seed chunkers in the parable. We're seed chunkers. God brings the increase. God decides what soil is good and what soil is ready. And so what that means practically is we don't pressure people to accept. This includes our kids. This includes our spouses. This includes our parents. This includes everyone that we know that we love. We're seed chunkers. We're the light of the world. It's not our choice to force their eyelids open to see the light. That's not our role. Not in this. We're seed chunkers. We don't manipulate them. We don't guilt them. We don't pressure people to accept we do not condemn ever. We don't need to bother with that. We're not scaring them to Jesus. We're the light of the world. We're seed chunkers. We plant the seeds and we let God grow the fruit where and when soil is ready. That's different than a lot of people approach ministry. But I think we learn that through a ministry lens. And then last, the theological lens. There's something, and this fits with just the overarching narrative of Luke. What do we learn about the kingdom here? There's something profound we learn about God's kingdom. How God is king and how God operates and introduces. We've already mentioned, Luke has mentioned this phrase, the kingdom of God, three times so far. But starting right here, we're going to see it increasingly more frequently. Right, Starting right here. And he is revealing to us more and more about how God and how he works in this process. Because remember, I've got to remind you of this, because this was a big thing that he was helping the Jews unlearn, okay? Many thought that this new kingdom of God would present itself in the way all kingdoms present themselves. In some big, noticeable way. Some kind of revolution's gonna happen. That's what they presumed. Like, maybe the the expulsion of the Romans who were you know... (laughs) They're they're occupying our land. God's holy land. So maybe that's how Jesus is going to do it. Maybe he's going to overthrow King Herod. King Jesus is going to take his place and roll in there and overthrow him. Or at least maybe he'll get that corrupt high priest out of the way and the great high priest will come in and start representing God to us and us to God in an accurate, godly way. At least that? Nope. None of that. The kingdom... Is like a seed. It's not going to roll in shock and awe program with the horses and chariots coming in. That's how other kingdoms do it, but not how God does it. It's a seed. The kingdom is like a seed. It's a seed in people's hearts. That's how he's going to do it. That's what this kingdom is. God's takeover of the world would be a heart movement. And it still is. It's a heart movement. Moving on, verse 16, just a series of three little statements that might seem unrelated but have some connection to what's going on here. No one lights a lamp and hides it in its jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. So just briefly through here. Verse 16, he's saying how sad and ridiculous it is. I mean, this is kind of Jesus' humor teaching here. Who lights a lamp and puts it under the bed? You know, who does that? No one would do that. And they would go, well, of course not. That, so it's ridiculous for anyone to see this seed, get this word of God, see the light, and then hide it, not receive it, not utilize it. I mean, who would take, think about this, who would take the offer of healing, of hope, of joy, of peace that passes understanding, Who would take the offer of full and abundant life and the defeat of every human being's problem, death, the defeat of death, and go, eh, not interested? No one would. Not if they really believed that that's what it was. That's Jesus believed that's what it was. It's ridiculous for anyone to hear the gospel, the word of God, and not utilize it and in verse 17 it speaks of our tendency to hide things you know or lie in order to ignore things that are important or dismiss things or discredit things when it, especially when it's the light of god's truth and we're uninterested we got to come up with arguments that make sense of our position and so we blame the church or we blame you know just uh bad representation of the gospel or we blame our you know just our general disbelief and skepticism that there's anything beyond this life we'll we'll do all that and that can be honest but it can also be deceptive and a trick you might have real doubts that you need to as you're pursuing the light you might have real doubts i'm not talking about that I'm talking about that soil that's closed the hard path there's no chance because we're busy hiding things he says, you might as well take that mask off. Might as well be exposed to the light because nothing will not be disclosed. Nothing will not, you know, be in the light. Ultimately, secrets are impossible. Verse 18 is basically another way of saying you don't sit still in life. You're either taking ground or you're losing ground. There's not static. Which one are you doing? If those are the only choices, okay? If those are the only choices, which one are you doing? in terms of the kingdom. Can't say I'm static. I'm not doing anything. You might feel that way. That's losing ground. So pay attention. Pay attention, he says. He says, be careful how you listen. Not just listen, be careful how you listen. There's a way to listen to God's voice that puts your focus on the most important thing. So he's saying that. And then he goes for the throat on what the most important thing is. And it's not Rocket science at this point, but he uses a pretty powerful analogy to highlight the importance of God, the Word of God, and Jesus. It says, Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to hear him because the crowd, get near him because the crowd. Someone told him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's Word and put it into practice. Now, in the Jewish culture, family is super important. The appropriate thing to do here would have been, hey, your mother and your brothers are out here. That's why they interrupted him because they know family is so important. They want to see you. He would hop up say, excuse me, and go see. It's like when I get a call from anyone and I'm in the middle of an important meeting, I may skip it. I may not answer it. My phone rang while I was sitting right up here. Just a minute ago. I'm not answering that. I'm busy, right? Except when it says, Carrie. Right? When it's Carrie, I'm answering the phone. I say, excuse me. I, I need to answer this call because that's important that's what should have happened here but instead he shocked everyone and made a profound point your commitment to god is your strongest loyalty your commitment to god and his kingdom rises to the level of your strongest most you know the biggest commitment of your life and he even redefines family from a kingdom perspective he says you know your family is your family, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, those are those who do the will of God. They're your most intimate community. Many of you have had this experience. Your most intimate community is not your physical family, but you have found family by people who run after God. It, when, when I'm talking to people who are dating, and I used to do this in youth ministry, I got this from buddy Todd Brown. He, he gave this advice I always forget. For, I always remembered, I never forgot. He said, run as fast as you can after God okay, after Jesus, then look to your left and your right. That's who you can date. Isn't that good advice? It's really good. But it struck me here that it fits for this too. You run as fast as you can, as hard as you can after God, after Christ. You look to your right and your left. Whoever's keeping up, that's your most intimate allies. That's your family. Those are your friends. Your real friends. Pretty powerful. So, um, last story it's a, it's a doozy it's one of the big ones in the other gospels it gets a little bit more time but this is a, a, a neat story it says one day Jesus said to his disciples let's go to the other side of the lake so they got into a boat and they set out Dole read this a minute ago as they sailed he fell asleep a squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where's your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. So, of course, this scene, just on the surface, is another Great demonstration of Jesus' authority, right? Like we've seen this. Luke has made a point of this. He's building up the credibility of Jesus by showing his authority that God has granted him over all kinds of things, physical things, supernatural things. And then this This might be his biggest physical move he's made, you know, um, where he controls the weather right here. And it's absolutely amazing. It's beyond impressive what he did around that boat. But the way Luke tells the story He draws our attention through Jesus' focus to what's going on in the boat. So Barclay, William Barclay is one of the commentators that I read each week on this, and he observed that there's a deeper message to this story than just that outer impressiveness, okay? And for that, we have to see what Luke is highlighting in the boat. The deeper message, he titled it. He said, wherever Jesus is, peace and calm is available. Okay, so I just want you to sit with that for a minute. He's suggesting that the message here of this text is wherever Jesus is, peace and calm are available. They're always available. The elders and ministers at our retreat last weekend, and we were introduced to this term by our guest um, called unanxious presence. And we were learning that in terms of in this world, you know, this church family that we want to serve and represent Christ to and then this world that we want this church to serve and represent Christ to are going to face storms. It's just happening. It's going to happen and it does happen and it is happening and we want to be able to have an unanxious presence in the face of any kind of dilemma whether it's physical or theological or spiritual or whatever it is And, and how do you attain that? How do you attain that as a shepherd? How do you attain that as a minister? And so this This is what hit me. Because of that, I was reading it this way. Jesus modeled it. There was a legit storm. Luke says they were being swamped. He says they were in danger. It's legit. There is actual danger happening. Luke's sleeping. I mean, Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is sleeping. He has an unanxious presence. How? How is that possible? And then when the disciples understandably woke him up because they're in legit danger. Jesus then calms the storm. He does it. It's awesome. There he is. Where Jesus is, peace and calm is available, right? But it doesn't end there. Luke does it. He could have ended it there. He could have ended and then had this last statement. Who is this that, you know, can control the wind and the waves? It's amazing. Nope. Jesus then turns in the boat and he says something that presumes that you didn't need me to do that. You had access to something that would have given you the unanxious presence that you were hoping to get by escaping the storm. You had something in this boat that would have given you an unanxious presence even in the face of legit danger. You know what it was? It's their faith. And not just some nameless faith, it was faith once again in Jesus. Jesus is there. Jesus is in the boat. He's modeling unanxious presence. And they had access to that, but they didn't utilize it. So he rebuked the wind and the waves, but he also rebuked his disciples, saying, You could have weathered this storm without me calming it. That's powerful to me. There's a there's a message here that that Jesus is communicating. And it, it starts bordering on it's just unreasonable. It's legit danger. It's a big storm. Okay? Right? We, we're starting to border on the power potential of faith in Jesus that Luke is narrating. And it's bigger than we would normally presume upon God, that we would normally feel comfortable doing. But here it is. Where's your faith? Back to that question Where is your faith and what is it in? Is it maturing? Is it growing? Is it scope and capability? Is it taking root and it's becoming hefty, heftier than the storms? You have access to that. He wants you to grow in that. Do you have to be there today? Do you have to be all the way there tomorrow? No. But don't you want to be? Where's your faith? Who is it in? Let me ask our elders and our ministers. They're going to go ahead and get up and move around the room and up in the balcony. In case you just need a personal touch today, that's why we do this. We want to be here for you, let you know. That, that you're not alone be that cloud of witnesses I'm pretty sure I guess I'm pretty sure you've got storms in your life you've either had them and you're recovering you know or you're in them or they are coming or all three and it's legit dangerous it is not trifling it's not insignificant Luke affirms this was a dangerous storm and I know yours are too and listen if you're on your own you've got legit reason to be scared for your life if you're handling it alone, no wonder you're panicking. No wonder you're doing that because we don't have the resources like me in that race. I didn't have the resources to run that race. It's just not in me. And if you're alone, yep, I, I don't blame you for being upset, for panicking, for being desperate. But the message holds true and I've seen it a thousand times. Maybe, and she's coming to mind now, right now. Maybe I've seen it Not most, but a lot in Wilma. I saw it in her over and over. If you ever had the privilege of sitting down and hearing her life story, you saw how God increased her faith. And that woman lived in such a peaceful calm in the midst of so many storms. There's an old song that snagged my attention back when I was youth ministry that uh, it was a very useful anthem for me ever since in this. And some of you might remember this. It's an old one where the chorus says, Sometimes he calms the storm. Other times he calms his child. Don't you want someone like that in your life? Somebody that has the authority to speak to the winds and the waves and tell them to calm down, but also has the authority to look in your eyes and say, hey, mm, eyes on me, faith. You're okay, because I'm with you. Up to and including death will not steal your joy, will not steal your stability you will not be shaken because you have me. Where Jesus is, calm and peace is available. That's what I want. That's what I want for you. I need it. I learned that in stark, horrific circumstances a month ago and so many of you have too. And I need it, you need it. So that's the invitation of Jesus. When he says, where's your faith? He's saying, I'm offering you. I'm offering you a faith in me, that will weather the storms. I've got you. We need him. So let's stand. Let's sing to this great God. And if we can help you with anything you're dealing with, please come.